0: That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your program. What's the big idea? Well, they have going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here.
1: I had an Irish upbringing.
0: 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a
1: fucking job. Hello there and welcome to the George Hamilton episode of An Irishman Abroad. George is, of course, a man who needs no introduction. His evocative and celebrated commentary is familiar to millions. He's captured the highs and lows of Irish sports for generations of sports fans ever since he first took up the microphone in the mid-70s. And I just was delighted to get the chance to sit down with him. Now that he's written his memoir, The Nation Holds Its Breath, which, of course, echoes the famous phrase he uttered just before David O'Leary scored that decisive penalty against Romania in Italia '90. And that's the era that the book focuses on, is that 10-year period with Jack Charlton at the reins. It's so well-written, it's such a sports fan's book, but also there's just this life of George Hamilton behind it all as he travels the world, covering these events from the Olympic Games to uh, the Rugby World Cup final, to multiple World Cups and beyond. He's seen it all. Every corner of this earth has to offer and every type of sporting event available. I uh, can't speak highly enough of the man. He's just an absolute gent. I know you're going to love it. Let's get to it. It's the George Hamilton episode of An Irishman Abroad. George Hamilton, thank you so much for doing the Irishman Abroad podcast at last. A Nation Holds Its Breath is the name of the book and... I mean that is the phrase is it not that people associate with you and I think that that's probably the mark of a great commentator is that there are these phrases that are indelibly linked to their voice and that is yours it's obviously not a scripted phrase you've said in the past that commentary can't be scripted but that that phrase arrives so fully formed in the moment my question is do you know as you're saying it, this is just right? Or are you more focused on being present?
0: Well, Jara, thank you very much for having me. It's always a delight to revisit that afternoon in Genoa and recall how the, the phrase came about, because as you say, it, it has become almost like like a trademark, uh, a, a, an oral signature, if you like. Uh, mm. And it, it it is very much a case of being in the present. It's not something that you can actually... Reflect upon and say, "Wow, I nailed that!" It's not like you know approaching the green in a golf course and putting it to within six inches of the pin and saying, "Wow, that that was it." No, it doesn't work like that. It works rather more like the nineteenth hole when it's all over and you're reflecting back and you see. I think I might have mm-hmm. might have got it that time, because there is too much happening in the in the moment. Uh, for you to be thinking of anything other than what you're actually doing. And and the, the process of arriving yeah. at the phrase was very was very simple and, and when you hear it, you know, it it'll it'll come across as quite logical. The commentary had gone on for the 120 minutes of, of the match and we were into the penalty shootout. Uh, and you're you know you're you're on metaphorically speaking, on the edge of your seat throughout. You're really you know concentrating at a very high level. And as the penalty shootout was going to be the dramatic conclusion to this a match that could put Ireland in the quarterfinals of the World Cup for the very first time. It happened to be happening just after 6 o'clock Irish time. And the 6-1 news was on RTE 1 television. And they decided that they would join the commentary, the coverage on Network 2, as it was then called, the second RTE channel, uh, to show the penalty shootout. And I had this instruction in my ear uh, to tell me that they were now going to have it on the news as well. And I should be aware uh, that there might be people watching, would well be, could well be people watching, who wouldn't be familiar with the ins and outs of a penalty shootout. So I would need to maybe expand upon my commentary uh, for the benefit of the uninitiated who would be watching the news and weren't expecting to be watching a football match conclude with a penalty shootout. Mm-hmm. Um, so this lodged in my head as the penalty shootout was, was evolving. And obviously, there's so many thoughts. Uh, I'm no psychiatrist to know how, how the brain works, but there's so many things going on in your head as you're doing a commentary over the whole piece. Uh, and this obviously lodged itself somewhere uh, in in the file marked important. <laughs> so I'm continuing with the penalty shootout, and we get to the final two kicks, where if it these don't, uh, if they both go in, or they both are saved or missed, uh, then it will go to a sudden death uh, situation. So. Uh, we get to the point where uh, Bonner is standing up to Timofty and he makes the save and it's now all down to the last kick. And so you're frantically thinking of the words th- that will match the pictures because that's what commentary is. The pictures are there and they're the story and you are only helping with the, with the fact that it's on television that you're bringing part of being at the occasion to the viewer. And so what, what can I say? Well, state the obvious <laughs> this kick can decide it all uh, because that was all that needed to be said about the relevance of the kick and then you let the tension build mm. and David O'Leary has placed the ball and he steps back to take the kick and on the cut and this is part of the art of television commentary the pictures lead the way so when it cut from the close up to the wide shot of the goalkeeper on his line and David O'Leary about to take the penalty there has to be a comment uh, and it has to it has to specifically make the point as to what is about to happen and it was at that moment that the the light went on um, i had a vision in my head of everyone watching television in ireland crouched in front of the screen or standing up bolt upright wherever they were whoever was watching television in ireland at that moment because there was no other television irish television station other than rte and its two channels were showing these pictures the nation holds its breath, and they were there. Well, George,
1: it's a it's a great way to start our conversation because of so many many questions around you know what is an extraordinary life. L- let's be honest, the countries you've been to, the moments in history that you've witnessed. It's so much crammed into an extremely short period of time, relatively speaking. There's enough for four lifetimes for a normal person in the things you've seen from Nelson Mandela presenting the Webb Ellis Cup to, uh, you know, finding yourself in these far from places, having to get from one to the other in time to cover another sports event. The people that you've crossed paths with, it must have been challenging when your approach to write this book to know, well, what is it I'd like to write about from this life and what, what you find interesting and what you've come accustomed to uh, must be hard to kind of figure out, well, will, will people, will I have to break that down for regular folk to understand why I fell in love with that part of this thing?
0: Well, it's interesting that I'm talking to you uh, as the Irishman abroad (laughs) because I felt like that uh, on many, many occasions. Uh, And indeed, it it has crossed my mind on so many, many occasions. How could it be that the wee man from the Crager Road in East Belfast ended up here, wherever here happened to be on any given day? Because I have been extremely fortunate in uh, being able to follow my dream uh, and to travel the world and to be part of so many big occasions for an audience back at home. Um, the book uh, w- was a, a challenge, all right, because I'd never written a book before. Uh, I was approached uh, by the publisher, Connor Graham, um, and uh, he said there can only be one title for this book. And uh, when I decided that I would like to do the book, because I think I, I enjoy reading people's memoirs, and I felt that maybe I had a story to tell that might, might uh, engage Uh, A public. So I I accepted the commission and then I thought, he's given it this title. So uh, basically, the arc of the story has to bring me from the beginning of it all, like how come I'm a sports commentator at all, uh, to the moment that that phrase came out of the television sound speakers. Um, and, and that's that was how I, I went at it. So it, the whole story isn't there by any means. I mean, it stops in 1995, hmm. uh, with Ireland's failure to qualify for Euro 96. But I felt that the, the, the main thread had to be the, the 10 Charlton years. Uh, and, what, and what brought us to that point? Uh, was was the backstory, uh, so so that was how I went about it, uh, and that's why it has taken the form that it has. And you know, there's so many other uh, stories that even in the time frame that the book deals with, from uh, the beginning in 1950 to to 2000 to 1995, you know, there's, there's plenty in those 45 years that that I didn't even get to touch upon uh, because it was mm. principally uh, football related because of the nature of the title. I mean, there's there's nothing about the Olympics. There's, there's nothing about the, the Rugby World Cups or the, the World Championships in athletics or even even the last Olympics when the guys from Cork got the, the rowing gold medal, which was the first time in yeah, 11. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I came. did want... Yeah, I, I'd never commentated on an Irish Olympic the, gold. So
1: I did think that was quite interesting, George, in the book that, y- you know, you've said that one of your most challenging and distinct memories and maybe your favorite memory of covering sport was the 1988 100 meters olympic final the ben johnson race the Mm. dirtiest race in sport they've called it 10 seconds 30 words tops to cover what is a a 10 strand story (laughs) being told at top speed with the eyes of the world on it Uh, What made you decide not to go into this side of things? Because clearly you do have a big love of athletics.
0: Yes, uh, I'd have to say it was to do with the nature of the arc of the story, as I put it, that I felt uh, it had to be a football story because of the title of the book. uh, And that if I went down the road of uh, going into the Olympics to do it justice, it would be another three hundred pages, and mm-hmm. that was not what the publisher wanted. I was working to a to a, a strict word count. and um, they know best. I've no knowledge of the book trade and and how to sell books or present mm-hmm. books. Uh, and and that my contribution was to to decide uh, what what it was that was going to be in those three hundred pages. Uh, and I took a conscious decision to uh, not to go down there, maybe some other day, but uh, not on this occasion. Uh, because I do, as you say, have a, a great love of athletics, and you know, a, a one hundred meters uh, final in an Olympic Games or World Championships or anything uh, is, as you rightly say, one of one of the great challenges uh, of broadcasting. And it that is the one occasion when you've done the race and you've done the replays, and the it's, they've moved on to the next event, and you have a chance to draw breath is one of those moments when you can say, "Wow." That was something else, and I'm glad I got that right.
1: So you can't, as you say at the start, script. You can't uh, prepare for what's going to unfold. You can only be present. Do you rehearse, though, when it it is a unique race, the 100 meters? Surely you must have VHS tapes back then that you watched back, and in your hotel room you attempted to commentate on
0: those. Um. Honestly, no, Charlotte, I've never rehearsed a commentary, never rehearsed a commentary. Uh, What I would say, though, is that I have researched the commentary to within an inch of its life because it is such a such a close thing to call because those who are in that final are not going to be separated by very much. And basically, it's a question of deciding who you think is most likely on the basis of the available evidence. And you'll end up with two or three and in all honesty, the other five, six, or seven who are on the track aren't going to get a mention, really, hmm. unless something untoward happens. But it's really going to be between the one, two, and the three. And, you know, you can pretty clearly work out who those are likely to be, and you focus on those. And, and that's, how, that's how you get it, get through it in 10 point whatever seconds it takes to get the first three over the line.
1: Yeah, I mean, this preparation that you talk about, this uh, work that you put in beforehand, uh, was it Bill McLaren that told you that you prepare to uh, 100% of what you can possibly cover, knowing that you'll more than likely only use 5%? Can you take us back to when Bill said that to you and how much of an epiphany that was at the
0: time? I'm just going to pause for a cough, Charlotte. <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, and then I'll answer your question now. That was a key moment uh, in my development as a commentator. I had commentated on uh, on a match at Twickenham uh, beforehand, but it had not been broadcast. England against Ireland in the Five Nations, as it then was, and this was going to be my first real live commentary. I'd done recorded snippets for programs back in Belfast where I was based at the time but this was going to be my first real live commentary and I was taken down to College Park in Dublin Trinity College uh, rugby field just off Nassau Street by my producer and editor Joy Williams who went on to become the BBC's first female head of sport when she got the the job as the boss of sport in Northern Ireland but she did all the production on the rugby uh, away trips we went down to Dublin on the Thursday and stayed in the Shelburne Hotel. It's, it's etched in my memory. And then we we walked down Kildare Street to go to the the run out, as they called it. Uh, the captain's run is what mm. they call it nowadays. And it was Scotland at half past ten in the morning, and we arrived and they were already on the pitch and there were a few knots of people about. And in one of the knots of people was uh, the very distinguished and uh, easily recognizable figure of Bill McLaren, tall in a in a, in a beige colored trench coat and. Uh, that shock of black hair that he had, and he was, he was talking to some people on the touchline, and Joy eventually saw him. I had seen him, but said nothing because I was, uh, I was, I was a fan who was now getting a microphone, uh, and here was the man who did it uh, to perfection. Uh, and then when Joyce, I said, oh, "Darling, there's, there's there's Bill McLaren. Come on, I'm going to introduce you to Bill." And I thought this is this is ridiculous. You know, Bill McLaren doesn't want to be meeting me, uh, but he he might want to be Joy. So I trotted along beside Joy, uh, big hello, big kiss, and then she said, "Bill, I want you to meet my new boy." And uh, she said, "He's doing his first comedy tomorrow." And Bill McLaren, who had been talking to some other people and looking at the training session turned to me and he said, the first one tomorrow? I said, yeah, yeah, and I'm really excited. He said, well, come on, come. we'll walk up the touchline a bit and we'll have a little bit of a chat. And he excused himself from the people he was with within a minute of meeting me and took me up the touchline and he said, you know, this is a great privilege, this job that we have. He was a PE teacher, but he did it part time. He said, we get to go, we sit in the best seat in the house and we get to see the best of the games. And he said, it, it's, just, it's just something that uh, we have to respect and we have to do it to the best of our ability. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of tips here. He said, As you see those, just look at the backs there. And the back line in those days uh, included, Scotland's back line, two centres, Ian McGeekin and Jim Rennick. And he said, you know, the way you recognise players is by their shape and how they move. Forget about their numbers, although numbers are important. But they won't always oblige you by turning their back when you need to identify them. So there has to be something else. He said, in the case of McGeeken and Rennick, McGeechan's the one with the dark hair. Rennick's the wee baldy one. So get that in your head and that's where you start from. And, you know, if you think about it and apply it to everyday life, Charles, if you're walking down the street and somebody, you know, comes around a corner, a hundred yards in front of you and starts walking towards you, you'll recognize them instantly, mm. even though they're the best part of a hundred yards away, because you know how they will look, you know how tall they are, you know, their shape, you know how they walk. And it's the same thing with commentary that you, t- you must concentrate on the person and how they conduct themselves physically. And then you have it and forget about the numbers then. And this is why when they went to uh, squad numbers and people used to say, how are you going to, it's going to be so confusing. How are you going to manage that? Because the numbers are all over the place. It's no longer one to 11. Well, it's because it doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. because you've, you've concentrated on the player as opposed to the number that he or she is wearing. And that way you get to, you get to recognize them much more easily than if you're dependent on Putting Jim Rennick's name with the number twelve and Ian McGeegan with the number thirteen, or vice versa. So, how, how would you familiarize yourself
1: with their body movement, though? When you know, when a lot of our younger listeners are going, there was no YouTube, there was no on-demand video. Uh, what methods were you using to get to know these players? Was it literally watching more practice?
0: Watching more practice was the was the only way it could be done. Really, uh, there wasn't even the V the VHS was only coming in the the, the cassettes for recording uh television programs so it, it was a case of watching watching as much as you could too on tv like bearing in mind you know the, in the case of the rugby which is where i started all these five nations matches were on the box so i would try and see even though they were played simultaneously in those days i would watch rugby special on the sunday uh, to familiarize myself with the teams um, and then the other thing about it Jared, is that uh, the hardest time of any commentator's career is the first year or two when everything is new. Mm, um, yes. But once once you're into it, uh, they're not all changing at the end of every season. So it's the same people keep coming back again and again and again with only a few new faces. And that's that's the trick is, you know, you, you concentrate on what you don't know as opposed to, uh, you know, bolstering what you do know with something that is maybe not relevant. I'll tell you a story about, about that in terms of, of recognition. I was commentating for uh, RTE on a live Premier League match back in the 1990s when Blackburn Rovers uh, were still a big team in terms of the league they played in. And we went to cover a Blackburn Rovers game uh, live. And we didn't have co-commentators all the time in those days, um, but we did have a producer. And my producer was a guy called Stephen Alkin. You might hear Stephen Alkin on the air from time to time because he's still commentating. His real job was as a producer, but he had a real desire to be a commentator, and he got to combine the two later in his career. But on this occasion, he wasn't commentating. He was with me, minding me, as the producer. And um, anyway, Blackburn Rovers, playing whoever they were playing, uh, scored an early goal. And uh, as happens, the uh, once the goal is scored, The close-up camera focuses on the goal scorer. And here we had this guy, full face, all smiles, arms in the air, running towards the camera, celebrating the fact that he'd scored the goal. And I hadn't a clue who he was. (laughs) And Stephen Alkin (laughs) beside me is pointing frantically at my commentary sheet. And I, trusting him implicitly, said, Jason Wilcox has put Blackburn Rovers in front. (laughs) And I had to believe him uh, because I trusted him. And he wouldn't have done it if he hadn't been certain. Uh, so we got to halftime, which was a good half hour later. And I clapped him on the back and said, thank you so much for that. You made me sound good. How on earth did you do it? And he said, I said, how, do, how on earth did you know Jason Wilcox? Never mind, how did you do it? And he didn't know Jason Wilcox either. But he said, a quick look at 22 names. And his was the only one I didn't recognize. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing i mean this is uh, like the
1: stuff that i really wanted george to be honest with you because we we know your voice as such a part of for so many of us growing up yours was the voice that accompanied us on as you say this 10-year ride with ireland the charlton era that i guess instilled the love of the game into so many introduced the game to so many others And will never be replicated for, for so many reasons. You'll never have your first kiss again. No, that really was Ireland's first blush with football. Talk to me a little bit about when you sensed that this locomotive was gaining some kind of energy
0: and speed. Well, it it was hard to believe it through the first qualifying campaign, which as you will recall, uh, began following an ignominious start for Jack Charlton. He lost his first match in charge on a a grey March afternoon in uh, Lansdowne Road because with no floodlights, midweek internationals had to be played half past two or three in the afternoon. And this was against Wales, not the most glamorous of opposition, notwithstanding the fact that they've qualified for the World Cup in Qatar. And I have some very good Welsh friends, but I think they would. (laughs) <laughs> they would allow that maybe that's not the glamour tie that you'd like to start your international management career with. Anyway, didn't Wales win 1-0? And, uh, you know, there was a banner in, in the East Stand in Lansdowne Road that afternoon saying, go home union, Jack. They didn't want an Englishman. Unbelievable. People football. won't even believe that to hear you say that. Yeah, well, that, that's, that, that's fact. That that happened, you know. And that was that, at the, the very first match that Jack Charlton took charge of. So... There was no sense of the locomotive building up steam when he had his first few matches in charge. Uh, and, it you know, it, it didn't actually look like they were really going to go anywhere because they finished their qualifying campaign uh, before everybody else. You know, they were, they were idle on the last day and they had a chance of qualifying, but nobody believed it was actually going to happen because, uh, well, basically, uh, it was Bulgaria against Scotland that would decide whether or not Jack's team went to uh, Germany, West Germany, in the European Championship, Euro 88. And Bulgaria hadn't lost at home for ages, and Scotland were out of the running. uh, And it was beyond the bounds of wildest dreams to imagine that Scotland would do Ireland a favour. But um, Tim O'Connor, who was the head of RTE Sport, uh, who turned RTE Sport into what it became, across the glory years of the Charlton era and beyond and laid the template for everything that's followed tim uh, made decisions first and worried about the consequences later what's that great phrase you don't uh, make ex- you don't ask permission you ask for forgiveness
1: yeah it's easier <laughs> to get forgiveness than permission
0: <laughs> well that's what that, that was tim's philosophy so he would he decided that uh, that, notwithstanding the unlikelihood of anything good coming out of it, he would send to cover Bulgaria against Scotland in that final qualifying match that would decide Ireland's fate. And um, I was dispatched with Morris Reedy uh, as as producer to Sofia, Bulgaria, um, on the plane with the Scottish team because it wasn't very easy to get to Sofia in 1987, particularly on a on a Wet Tuesday night, um, or wet Tuesday morning. Anyway, uh, we went with the Scots to Bulgaria. Uh, we did the match, of course, the famous Gary Mackay goal, uh, beats Bulgaria, re- uh, relegated Bulgaria to second in the group, and meant that Ireland would qualify. And I think it was on that trip that I really realized that this was something, the locomotive, as you put it, was building up ahead of steam. Mm-hmm. Because until that point, it had been same old, same old. You know, dodgy refereeing decision, penalty not given, nearly but not quite, which plagued Owen Hand, the previous manager, throughout his reign. But now here they were; they'd actually qualified for a tournament, and goodness knows what was going to happen next. Yeah, and it became became a huge uh, thing on the way back when we were on the plane, Morris and I, with uh, the Scottish team, the plane, charter aircraft. Uh, Hadn't left Bulgaria when it delivered us. So it had been on the ground throughout the trip hadn't been recatered and for the flight home There was no alcohol on board. There was only beer for the players that had been kept back But everybody else on the plane and the plane was full of officials of press of some chosen spectators Nobody else was was getting a drink and we were down the back of the plane because we were we weren't part of the party so row 32 Uh, two seats and one spare beside us and down to the back of the plane came a man I'd known for many years uh, from working with the BBC uh, the late Ian St John the the former Liverpool player who was with ITV at the time and he said I have to come back and sit in the back row with you two guys because I know Scotland won but you're the guys who are really celebrating on this trip Uh, and with that uh, the travel agent appeared uh, and he said look and you know, there's there's no drink on the plane, but you, you guys have to have one. And I have a bottle of scotch from the, the duty-free in Glasgow. Uh, I'm I'm going to open it, and we're going to have a drink. So the four of us, Maurice <laughs> Needy, Ian St. John, the travel agent, and me, at the back of the plane, toasted Ireland's success. And I think in that moment, with that glass of scotch whiskey, that was the moment I realized that this was not going to be the same again.
1: Yeah, something new was beginning and, you know, you were there for every step of it. And even as you describe them taking out a bottle of whiskey that's been bought in the duty-free on the plane, it reminds me that, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that now. I mean, you'd, you'd probably have to pick up the bottle after you got off the plane. Yeah. And I don't bring it up just to be pedantic. I bring it up because it's reflective of the entire period and how nostalgic people are for... Oh the changes that have taken place since that it was a simpler time uh, even just travelling as you say as difficult as it was to get to sofia there wasn't the rigmarole of going through the airport taking off shoes going through security it was obviously a you know bag through the gate on you go where's your ticket more like a bus experience oh Are yes, people, people. Do, but do my question is do people have rose tinted glasses to, for this period um, unnecessarily or was it genuinely, George, just a beautiful time of change in sport, the country, Irish life and history?
0: I think that that uh, is very well put, Gerard, that it was a time of considerable change. Ireland was emerging from something that uh, wasn't, hadn't been so pleasant. Uh, had, it's almost like the past was in black and white. And here now was some colour Entering, entering the equation. There's another thing that I think we, we kind of forget about. Um, it, people do forget about at that time. Uh, 1988 was declared D- Dublin's millennium. Of course, uh, and uh, Dublin city. Dublin's manager great at end, in '88. Yeah. yeah, Dublin's great in '88. The city manager at the time, Frank Feely, you know, a very positive guy, looking for something, something to make people think and be happy about, came up with this idea to turn it into a millennium celebration. And, you know, there was that kind of colorful sideshow going mm. on at the same time as Jack Chardon's team was appearing at the European Championship, first major finals ever in West Germany in 1988. Uh, and I, I, I liked your line about how his team introduced so many people to the sport of mm. football who maybe weren't football followers at all. You know, here was something and it, it, it has struck me as significant. Here was something that allowed Irish people to be Irish men and women abroad. Because if you think of the GAA, all rivalries are local. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and th- there is no real international dimension to the GAA, notwithstanding the, the compromise rules series that they have from time to time. But yeah. it, it's, it's specifically an Irish sport. Irish people wearing their colours were really wearing their county colours. They never wore the green to a match. Mm. to uh, to assert their Irishness abroad because they never had the opportunity at a tournament like like the Euros of the World Cup. And suddenly here we were, green shirts everywhere to be seen in Stuttgart in the days in the run-up to the uh, to the European Championship opener against England. And you know, this was an opportunity that fell into the hands of Irish fans because I don't know who who lit the spark, but they learned very early on that to just by being Irish, by being jovial, by having a few drinks, and by making friends with everybody around, uh, that they could actually create a good impression of what a football fan was like. Unlike what uh, was the case in in certain other uh, areas. Let's be yeah. no more specific. No, than we that. all
1: know what you're referring to, and 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 it's so funny the legacy of that. Uh, Still visible today, whether it's singing lullabies to babies on trains mm. <laughs> or uh, sweeping up the streets outside pubs rather than throwing the furniture around the place. yeah, it, it began there in in I Stuttgart.
0: Did, so. And I remember uh, interviewing the Chief of police in Stuttgart uh, specifically about uh, the the problems of policing an England Ireland game in his city. And I asked him, as uh, uh, you know the straight question, are you expecting trouble? And he was very honest. He said, no, I don't see any reason for trouble. It's a, it's lovely weather. It's, it's June. It's summertime. Uh, they've come to watch a football match. Uh, from what we've seen over the uh, two days or so in the run-up to the game, uh, people are here to enjoy themselves and enjoy the football. And I don't see any reason why it's going to be any more problematic than, a, than any other football match in the city. And so it turned out. And I think once that had started, it then became a kind of a trademark. The Irish are the, are the fans uh, to look up to. And that story from the second game in Hanover against the Soviet Union I was making my way to the grandstand in the commentary position. And I saw these lads coming towards me in green Irish shirts. And at, at the time I was on TV, I did a program called Know Your Sport with the late Jimmy McGee. So my face would have been recognisable. Uh, and I was fully expecting to uh, be greeted by these guys and to greet them back. And as they came towards me, it was it was obvious that they, they, they were going to ignore me. Uh, and I was <laughs> a bit amused, and I was <laughs> going to say hello anyway, uh, when they came abreast of me speaking German. They were Germans in Irish shirts. No. Because the German team was nowhere near Hanover in that tournament. And they wanted to support a team. And they had chosen Ireland. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I I mean,
1: I kind of, I'm a bit lost as to what to ask, George, because this is, we've kind of hit on, you know, ground zero of what the book is about, that 10-year period. And even when you mention the Soviet game, the the image that comes flooding back into my mind is that Ronnie Whelan goal, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is still to this day, inadvertent or not, one of the best goals ever scored for the Republic. Oh, he yeah. is a, a friend for life now. Absolutely. Uh, same as Roy uh, Ray Heldon yeah. is. He launched the book in Dublin and Ray launched it in Belfast. Yeah. And I just think that is that part of why this period is so special, that the idea that a commentator could become best friends with such a player of such significance in the international squad nowadays would be a real anomaly. It would be a news story, whereas back then it feels like you were shoulder to shoulder with these guys on the journey.
0: Without a doubt. Um, You're absolutely right. It it is so different now. I mean, as money has entered the equation in a a huge way, so have middle people, middle men and women, Mm. Every, every media appearance is stage managed. There's no way you're going to get the chance to mingle with the guys at the bar. Don't even stay necessarily in the same hotel anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, in those days, we traveled on the same plane. We socialized together. Uh, we had fun together. I, I remember an afternoon in Stuttgart in the run up to that game on the Sunday. So it would have been, say, the Friday and it was afternoon. They'd had their training session. We were staying in the same hotel, small uh, hotel in the woods above Stuttgart. And I can't remember the exact circumstance as to why I was in the lobby at the time. But Niall Quinn appeared saying, there's a tennis court out there. Anybody fancy a game of tennis? (laughs) And I played tennis regularly at the time. And I thought, well, I'm not doing anything special this afternoon. I said, you're on if, if you fancy playing me. He said, absolutely, come on
1: that's the first half of our conversation and you're gonna want to hear about the niall quinn tennis match and how that finished up the book the nation holds its breath is out now everywhere you get books and of course you can hear george on lyric with his show uh, every week he uh He's just a very sound man. The book is published by Marion Press. It's available, as I said, in print, online, and in audiobook, voiced, of course, by George Hamilton. Uh, next week, we've got more with Sonia O'Sullivan coaching us towards the half marathon distance. With Marion McKeown making sense of what is probably the most turbulent time in America since we started the Irishman in America podcast. You can get access to all of those in their full form over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad come on over and hear the second half of my conversation with george hamilton